Welcome to Wandering Birds, coming to you from the city that never sleeps in the deep, deep, deep B-K-L-Y-N, Brooklyn. <laughs> Brought to you by the Gifted Sounds Network. Wandering Birds is a show that lets those on the go know just where to go when they wander the big blue marble. I'm Mickey T. And I'm Mickey B. This week, we're rolling back to beautiful Battle Creek, hidden gem of Michigan, home to the mysterious weeping statuary, respite for freedom seekers, serial capital of the world, Bountiful Battle Creek. Mm. So, where did we leave off last time, Mickey? Um, I'm trying to think. In our last episodes, we wandered to Battle Creek, the Battle Creek Sanitarium, formerly known as the Western Health Reform Institute, later known as the Percy Jones Army Hospital, currently known as the Hart Doyle Inouye Federal Center. So, that's a mouthful. It is. <laughs> <laughs> but you did very well. Many iterations, uh, many lives for one building. Um, so, we discussed the eccentric genius of Dr. J. Harvey Kellogg, his sanitarium, medical devices, the birth of the American vegetarian movement, and cereal wars, his brother's philanthropic efforts, and am I missing anything else? (laughs) You said cereal wars. (laughs) I can't help but laugh at that, but... Wait, drop drop the spoon? Oh... Um, well, we also talked about the closing of the Serial Museum, which made my heart a bit sad, but it happens. And we also talked about the founding of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Oh, yeah. And also how Battle Creek got its name in the first place. That's true. That's true. Covered a lot. Mm-hmm. And we wandered down to the Dr. John Helly, Harvey Kellogg Discovery Center on 480 Van Buren Street, West Battle Creek. Um, we explored some of the wild and wacky inventions of Dr. Kellogg and learned about the Seventh-day Adventist Church pioneers. By the way, Miki, between this show and the last, I found out that the Kellogg Company still owns Morningstar Farms Company, which is the leading veggie meat supplier in the United States. Um, There was also something else I discovered when I was looking over uh, for the copy of the primary source on the adoption of George Kellogg. You remember George Kellogg, right? Yes, that really troublesome uh, individual who, as a young boy dr kellogg adopted yes mm-hmm. bless his little I, heart i do remember that that little rascal little rascal yes he was john harvey kellogg's adopted son who was the tipping point for kellogg's interest in the american eugenics movement and well i was looking for the article about george's sad plight pre-kellogg to pin to our printress page for the episode when i discovered some interesting information about some of john harvey kellogg's other adopted children now Now, unfortunately, I didn't find the article I was looking for, but according to Brian C. Wilson's book, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg and the Religion of Biologic Living, the majority of Kellogg's foster and adopted children went on to live very productive lives. Uh, Take the case of uh, Isabel and Alberto Gonzalez Garcia. The Garcia siblings were from uh, Zacatecas, and that one's a little bit difficult for me to say, so I'll repeat it again. Zacatecas, Mexico, and after... Seventh-day Adventist missionaries um, visited their parents. Um, Their parents actually allowed their children to be adopted by Dr. John Harvey Kellogg so that they could move to America for a better education. The Garcia children joined the ranks of the Kellogg's 42 adopted and and foster children. Um, Both graduated from Battle Creek College. Alberto Gonzalo uh, goes on to earn two medical degrees. In 1915, he became the first Mexican-American physician Position to open a medical practice. Now that's pretty huge. Dr. Gonzalo Garcia also helped establish a Mexican workers group called Obueros Mexicanos. And he and his wife, Eva, published the first Spanish language newspaper published in Austin, Texas, uh, La Vanguardia. Oh, wow. That is wonderful. Um, I mean, first of all, just as an American, it, it makes you proud of the diversity of your nation and how every person matters in the where this um, where this nation is today I wonder funny enough about the whole nature nurture debate if Dr. Garcia's achievements could be attributed to the influence of Dr. J.H. Kellogg 
um, in terms of nurturing or if it was in his nature, his inner abilities. And that's that's kind of like the, the sad thing about the case of George. So these are two brown children that Dr. Kellogg adopted. Well, George is white. George was white, but Isabella and oh. her brother were, you know, they were both brown children and they just did exceptionally well. But little George, who is was not a person of color, ended up being the reason why John Harvey Kellogg started his what Race Betterment Foundation for eugenics, you know? And it's kind of sad because these children did really well, all things considered. Um, but given what we know about George, uh, George Kellogg and some of the other Kellogg foster children and the adopted ones, um, it's really unfair to blame a failure to thrive in the Kellogg household on something, some innate genetic deficiency. Um, while the Garcia children were in a loving home with two parents who loved them enough to allow them to be adopted by someone who could give them better and unlimited opportunities, the Kellogg associates that found George were instructed to find, quote, the most miserable child in Chicago and bring him to live in the Kellogg home. Now they Unbelievable. found- I know. Like, go find the most miserable kid so that I can run my biologic living experiment to see yeah. if I can change the path of their life with vegetarian food and no sugar and no spice. It's clear that in some of the ca- the case of some of the Kellogg kids, they were coming from pretty traumatic situations before they integrated into the Kellogg home. Um, they had a lot to overcome before being placed in a vegan, sugar-free home with a father who believed that masturbation would kill you and daily enemas were the key to good health. So Miki, here's a question for you. When you were a kid, say five, six, seven, would you have chosen to live with parents who would pay for everything and anything you ever wanted, but never let you have sugar or meat or spices in your food and forced you to have enemas every day? Oh, um, see, I would actually be okay with all the rest of that. But then you said enemas. Um... Oh, God. Um, Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is we have necessities that we need to live. uh, Food, clothing, shelter, love. um, And then all of that would, I believe, would be provided for. But then the love aspect of it can go to an obsessive kind of level where physically I would be in a way violated because as a child, I don't want to deal with enemas. I, I, I mean, if... Okay, just the whole process of it. Like, wouldn't it hurt if you don't want to do it? Like, and that was a big part of his belief on cleanliness of the body and the sanctity of the body was to make sure that the bowels were clean. Right. Yeah. So there would be no way around that one. None at all. Um, um, I mean, like, yeah. I know as a five-year-old, me personally, you know, no, I would have been a problem in that household. Yeah. If you brought me from the household of origin at five or six and put me in that household, right. he might have had problems with me that he attributed to some genetic issue. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> blaming it on on one's origins when really what what one is doing, what what that person is doing to them is not right. Right. Unbelievable. It's I like, mean, people will believe what they want to believe. Um, but I went honestly in terms of the food, I I could deal with that. I could deal with a no sugar, no spices household. I well, hypothetically speaking. But then once I got out, I would go crazy. I couldn't. I, I at the age of 5, if you told me that it would have been tantrum city like uh, I would have adjusted children adjust to all sorts of situations but you know and when when I found this information we were discussing we wandering blurs, Um, there are accounts of uh, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg and his relationship with the adopted children when he brought them into the house um, the second book we reference actually um, elucidates a scene where he Dr. Kellogg asked one of his adopted children what is something you've always wanted to do for your whole life and the little boy said I've always wanted to ride and own a horse so the first day that Kellogg brings him into the house he surprises this kid by walking a a pony into the house and the kid of course the kid is freaked out because I suppose he was a city kid that never been that close but that just lets you know how far Kellogg was willing to go to make these children's lives what they dreamt of in spite of some of his mm, how do we say them unconventional beliefs about rearing and food and and health. Yes. Yeah. Miki, we touched briefly on CW Post and his meatless beef with <laughs> Kellogg. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and the cereal wars. <laughs> 
after the episode. And um, I have to admit, I felt like his story was kind of subsumed in the saga that was the Battle Creek Sanitarium. A little background on Charles William Post before we move on to the other historic high points of Battle Creek, Michigan. As we stated in episode one of this two-part episode, uh, C.W. Post was a businessman who visited the Battle Creek Sanitarium to find a cure for what some sources say was chronic dyspepsia and other sources claim was an appendicitis. Uh, What we know for sure is that Post was born and raised in the land of Lincoln, Springfield, Illinois. At the age of 13, he attended the Illinois Industrial University in Urbana, which would later become the University of Illinois, um, as most people will identify the uh, fighting Illini. But like many young entrepreneurs, uh, Post decided that his time would better be spent outside of academia. So he convinced his parents to allow him to leave school. Um, He joined the Illinois Governor's Guard, um, and that guard was put together, I found out, um, during the time that Post was in it to handle the destruction and rebuilding Chicago after the Chicago fire. The one that they, um, it was a, a fire in Chicago, and maybe we'll do a show on Chicago and talk a little bit more about it, but was blamed on uh, an Irish immigrant. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, it was blamed on an Irish immigrant, but they had to institute martial law in order to try and get the city back in order, and this guard was part of it. Oh, okay. And yeah. was there some kind of, uh, what do you call them? Not not a militia, not, like Imagine. a group of people that that went after the Irish? Oh, yeah. In retaliation? You know what oh, I mean? Oh, yeah. What, what, what group of people would that be called? Um, um, vigilantes? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. It, it Things definitely heated up in Chicago after then. Supposedly, the story was... And this also happened in a different way, the, the blame for the, the fire of London. But in this particular case, supposedly her cow knocked over her milk and it's turned over a candle that started a fire that she wasn't able to put out oh. and it burned the city. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. Well, there was must have been a lot of hay around. Must have been. You know, it's definitely a different type of city in that day and age than there is now. But Post joined this Illinois governor's guard and about a little a year after he formed a partnership with a former classmate and the two of them explored the American Rust. Now post ambition and his wanderlust were the keys of his success. He went on to become a traveling salesman, an inventor, uh, an innovator and a very successful businessman. Post patented several inventions including cooking utensils and suspenders and uh, everything to haystackers and a steam pump. Wow. Yeah. Now he invented um a improved player piano but that was not ever patented so he had several things just like Kellogg that he had his patented things and a lot of things that he let go unpatented but his physical and mental health took a turn for the worse after discovering that his parents took out a note on his business behind his back as a security for a mortgage on their home so Post almost lost his business as a result of this and he became hyper focused on all the facets of his business ventures fearing that he would miss something and end up in a situation that was bad yeah. very bad uh so that was a very traumatic thing for him and he and inv- so what he ended up doing was investing um in a 200 acre ranch on the outskirts of uh, fort worth texas which ultimately secured his family's fortune um the town was destined to become post city this led to him being brought to battle creek sanitarium on a stretcher for what his doctors were convinced was a hopeless cause um cw post left the battle creek sanitarium inspired by Kellogg's healthy cereals, he was determined to make his own chicory-based curative cereal called Postum. By 1895, C.W. Post founded the Postum Cereal Company, which we now know as General Foods, Foods International. Um, Post outmarketed the Kellogg brothers, but the Post empire was vast. In addition to Post City, he created Postumville as a philanthropic vendor on the outskirts of Battle Creek. The Post name is also graced Long Island University and the C.W. W. Post Memorial Boy Scouts. He also had an inn, a Battle Creek inn, um, that went out of business after he died, but yeah, did quite a lot. Um, by 1913, Post Health was on a rapid climb. His stomach issues returned, and when he withdrew from the public and from his public duties in March of 1914, he was rushed 
via train from California to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota for an emergency appendectomy. The Mayo brothers deemed his condition inoperable and he returned to Santa Barbara. On May 9th of 1914, plagued by his stomach, chronic stomach pain, Charles William Post shot himself, ending his life. His only child, Marjorie Merriweather Post, inherited her father's company and the majority of her father's $33 million fortune. And that's not adjusted. That's $33 million in 1914. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I assumed it wasn't adjusted. Yeah. So a lot of money. Something to think about when the next time you have a bowl of grape nuts. Now each year, Battle Creek celebrates its history and its role as cereal capital of the world by hosting the National Cereal Festival, the Grand Cereal Parade, and the world's longest breakfast table in June. The 2018 celebration will be held on June 9th on McComley Street. Well, I read that it's very commercial now, and oh. it doesn't really have the the closeness yeah. of the people. But even that aspect is very much a part of the history, the, the of history and the, the cereal, cereal wars. wars. Like, there's this story of like, okay, so we talked about in the last ep- episode, and I'm going to digress for a little minute, but we talked about how um, John Harvey sued WK for the rights to the Kellogg name um, because he felt like he should be the only person to make Kellogg cereal. Well, what I didn't mention was this campaign that he had during the Depression. And essentially, if you went in and winked at your grocer, your grocer was instructed to give you a free sample of Kellogg's. <laughs> I was like, what? What in the You're world? You're hungry. <laughs> I mean, we've got, if you go to our Pinterest feed, you can see a few of the ads and I'm going to add some more. Um, You can see either in, in either episode, part one or part two of Battle Creek, but the ad campaigns. Yeah. Post outdid the Kellogg's brothers, but the Kellogg's brothers caught up. In fact, there were a series of albums that posted all the way up through the eighties, early nineties. Music albums? Sounds albums like there's one that's a Kellogg's wait it's a Kellogg's production of of Jackson 5 music yeah with so like they collaborated on several of these efforts once again okay I have a few of them they're on the Pinterest feed you guys can check them out like all these efforts to kind of keep up with marketing over the years and stay relevant you know what I'm surprised that I'm surprised because I've seen different unrelated brands uh on different products and different services like Ray Racing cars and um, figure skating rinks and um, marathons, right? I think it was this huge tech company in India that sponsored um, some marathon in New York City. And I was just like, what? But yeah, well, I don't know why I'm surprised. Yeah, they used to actually put records in people's cereal boxes. Oh, yeah. The good old days. <laughs> In the good old days. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I I'm now sad that I never had grape nuts because I'm kind of curious about it. But oh, yeah. And I'm also I am surprised that I didn't have grape nuts because usually the kind of cereals that I eat they're all brown and pellet looking like a gerbil, like a gerbil's food or like uh, ripped up cardboard or something. It's very bland and filled with bran and stuff. So I'm gonna give grape nuts a try. Oh yeah. In honor of us wandering blurds. There you go. Cereal. We wander and we wonder about a lot of random things. Well, I grew up um, having that at my grandparents' house. Supposedly, it was supposed to be the healthy option, but I would not have my grape nuts without hot milk to make them not so crunchy and lots of sugar. Mm, (laughs) That sounds good. It was. I'm not going to lie to you. (laughs) So much for that. Healthy. It was lovely to have them sugary and hot. <laughs> and then when I grew up and I moved to New York, I um, would go into um, there's a, a Caribbean chain store. And since we don't do free advertising, I won't give you guys the name of it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there is a Caribbean chain store where they have grape nuts um, ice cream. And that was an experience oh. that I did not know would be just really exciting. I was like, with grape nuts and cereal. Yes. It was with, good. With the rainbow yes. on the bowl, right? Yes. Yeah, what's up with that? I don't. It was actually good. Okay, okay, so try it in the milk first. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then try it with hot milk and sugar. Okay, and then try it in ice cream. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Deal. <laughs> High five. <laughs> <laughs> 
So Oak Hill Cemetery is where Battle Creek's prophets, prophets, pioneers, and power players are laid to rest. The Post and Kellogg mausoleums were impressive, but we wandered past them. We bypassed the modest graves of the modern, uh, the Seventh-day Adventist founders, Ellen and James White, and Bill Knapp. Our destination was a sad bronze sentinel standing watch over the graves of Ruth and Johanna Stecker and their two daughters, who both died before their fourth birthdays. The Greek goddess statue that graces the final resting place of the Decker family is known throughout the state of Michigan as crying or weeping Mary. Now, weeping Mary was commissioned by Ruth Decker and she was sculpted by Chicago sculptor Nellie V. Walker. The legend of crying Mary claims that at the stroke of midnight on Sunday, Mary weeps. Naysayers will claim that Mary's midnight tears are merely condensation. However, how do you account for the timeliness of metal Mary's tears? That should fluctuate with the change of seasons and over time. Now, I thought that there might be some mechanism in within the statue that makes her weep. So I rested my head on her bronze torso to see if I could hear anything ticking or winding inside. You know, given the time, of course, it wouldn't be anything electronic, but I couldn't hear anything. Mary Deckert had the statue installed in 1911. So like I said, no electronic ti- uh, timers. And the legend of the crying statue didn't begin until 1940. So there's no indication of what caused that crying to start after 29 years with no reported activity. I've seen actually internet speculation on crying Mary. One person was so far off base. They were like, it's because Mary killed the children. No. Oh my gosh. One child was born stillborn and the other child was, she had scarlet fever and she died. So no, she didn't kill her kids. (laughs) But I don't know. Did you read that on Reddit or something? Yeah, there's a few. There's like a bunch of websites. I didn't know about this before I went, but when we got there, had to see it. Um, but you're probably wondering if the wandering blurs wisted, uh, witnessed Mary's tears. Well, Oak Hill Cemetery closes at 4.30 p.m. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and as someone who has been locked in a cemetery after wandering too late, I can tell you it's no fun scaling 10-foot fences. I don't know if you all are aware of this, but many cemeteries have like um, metal big, like, well, actually they're steel posts in front. Like there are pretty gates that are in front. Getting over those things when you're locked in is not fun. They cover them in pitch. Oh, so wait, <laughs> did you try to scale it? Oh, I, like I, I said, I actually have been oh. locked in a cemetery and had to get out of a 12 foot oh, gate. Oh my goodness. Like over it. Mickey's Adventures. And they do cover them in pitch. <laughs> Oh, wow. So I not only was very fearful, <laughs> but I was also uh, covered in pitch tar after my... So this time I noted that, yes, the graveyard closes at 4.30, folks. That's right. That's right. <laughs> to curtail any notions of hanging out. If you decide to do out, it, you know that's on you. To midnight. But we wandering blurs, Um, Yeah, we were out of there by sunset. Okay. <laughs> Dang, so I can't go see it in, my, in myself? Can't go see it in myself? Well, I won't say that you can't. Oh, true, true, true. It's just that. But you need to plan for it. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Because it closes at 4.30. At 430. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I got you, boo. <laughs> say no more. Mm-hmm. There. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who am I kidding? I'm not going to see that joint. <laughs> I'm good. I'll take your word for it. Oh, goodness. Yes, indeed. So in the front of the cemetery, in the shadow of the post mausoleum, is the monument of a very visionary woman whose achievements cannot be eclipsed by any man, living or dead. The final resting place of Sojourner Truth lies nestled between two evergreen bushes marked by a white flag. Born into slavery in the town of Swartakill, Ulster County, New York, around 1797, Isabella Baumfrey claimed her freedom, forged her way from oppression to activism for women and blacks and proclaimed a new name for herself, a name that spoke to the truth of her self-determined reality, Sojourner Truth. So, hey, Miki, mm-hmm. there are some interesting truths in what I've just revealed to you. Would you like to have a minute to puzzle them out? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, there's so much. Definitely. I need, I think I need several minutes. Um, but fortunately, I learned about Sojourner Truth when I was really young. So I knew about 
the different facts that you just shared. Mm -hmm. And I was as touched then as I am now. She sounded like an amazing woman. She had a beautiful name, her original name and her uh, eventual name, which was definitely well earned and um, yeah. a, a good choice. Um, all that other stuff, though. No, I, I need several minutes. Um, yeah. Yeah, she definitely lived through and came through a lot. Yeah. Most people believe that New York State was a state in which slavery never existed, which is patently wrong. Um, Emancipation Day in New York State was on July 4th, 1827. I really like I wanted to take a minute to make that very clear to our listeners because that's where she was enslaved in New York State <laughs> and it was a slave state. Um, now, another interesting fact, Swartikill, the town where Isabella Bomfrey was born is Old Dutch for essentially and excuse the the, the plainness of this, but uh, it's Old Dutch for nigger kill. Swarta being black or swarthy in appearance and kill, of course, is self-explanatory. We also have a fish kill here in New York. It's got lots of rivers. Very literal. Mm-hmm. Uh, kill is now Ripton, but before you go thinking that this is a, that was then and this is now situation, New York State had a nigger lake, nigger stream and nigger road on the map until 2011. I'll post that information on our Pinterest feed for this episode for those of you who think I'm pulling your leg about this. Mm-hmm. It oh may goodness. be an interesting upcoming episode to do on uh, problematic place names in America. Wow. I yeah. I will, uh, if There's, we do that, I will make sure not to eat anything beforehand because yeah. it's like stomach turning. Sadly, the register has over a hundred names. Yeah. All over the United States. Interesting facts. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> let's return to beautiful Battle Creek and its irrepressible Sojourner Truth. Little Isabella Bomfrey was sold away from her parents along with a flock of sheep for $100 in 1806 after the death of her master, Charles Hardenberg. English was Miss Truth's second language. She only spoke Low Dutch prior to being sold at the age of nine when her new masters beat the language into her. So they beat her because she didn't understand English. Um, Sojourner's favorite, uh, Sojourner's famous famous Ain't I a Woman speech that was given at the 1851 Ohio Women's Rights Convention was written a month later by a man. She actually gave that speech extemporaneously and the author that wrote her speech in a folksy Southern dialect did that to make her more relatable to his newspaper readers. What? Yeah. That I did not know. I didn't know that either. Until I did the research for this, I, I thought it was interesting because Ain't actually used to be terminology that wasn't strictly Southern, but by the time we're looking at the 1700s, it started to phase out and become a more regional type of thing to say, but it was actually a part of proper English back in the day. So I thought maybe that was it, but it's a little bit strange to at that time have a woman that spoke Dutch as a, a first language and lived in New York, use that colloquialism, which is very clearly very Southern. But essentially, in order to make her more relatable to his readers, this man who was in attendance at her extemporaneous speech and rewrote what she said he took notes added the southern flourish yeah she never spoke in a southern accent now most whatever works to tell you the truth i find that so problematic even I then i find it problematic too right like i guess they figured this one she did, she's not the kind of slave ex-slave that we really need yeah let's not let her speak for herself no let, let's give you some words let's take her words and then southern them up yeah make them yeah more twangy yeah yeah, I give her more of a twang. Now, most people incorrectly assume that Mrs. Truth was a runaway slave who journeyed north on the Underground Railroad. This is a fallacy. There are two accounts of Truth's path to freedom and neither includes the Underground Railroad or running. Several accounts of Miss Truth's journey to freedom, including the one on SojournerTruth.org, which is the site maintained by her family foundation, explained that after receiving a revelation from God in 1826, she gathered her infant daughter Sophia in her arms, turned her back on servitude, and walked to freedom. That's it. She walked. She didn't run. She walked away. Sojourner Truth reenactor Carolyn Evans gives a very moving performance of this event in Dutch accented English. Other counts assert that Truth was granted her emancipation through the New York Gradual Abolition Act. Unfortunately, time seems to erode the edges of truth even more so for the histories of women. 
woman, you know, because we we marry and particularly in that period of time, she never learned to read and write. So her story is told by the people that gave their voice to it. Yeah. But I like the, me personally, I choose, I like the one where she chose her destiny. I like that. Yeah. She just walked away. Yeah. She's like, this is it. God says that I'm not supposed to be a slave anymore. So I'm leaving you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I heard the latter. I heard the second yeah. version, but I do like the first the version first too. Yeah. This is all accounts document that she felt called by God to preach. And that's what she did. She worked as a housekeeper in the homes of clergymen and for the relatives of abolitionist friends. She crisscrossed the country selling her carte de visite to earn her keep and giving lectures on abolition, civil rights, women's suffrage, and even prison reform. Did you know that Sojourner Truth was the first black woman in America to sue a white man and win her case? No. Yeah. She also, I found out in talking to one of her descendants and doing some research for this case, she used to ride the streetcars in D.C. to challenge segregation. Yeah, Rosa Parks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Claudette Colvin, you weren't the first. <laughs> Man. Yeah. Badass. Um, okay. <laughs> Seriously, I was so, you know, cups up. Cheers. Gotta raise our glasses and take a sip for that one. Mm-hmm. You go, Sojourner Truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in fact, she was a victor twice in court. The first case was when she sued the man for the illegal sale of her son, Peter, to a slave owner in Alabama after emancipation in New York State. Now, the court ordered that Sojourner Truth's child be returned to her in New York. Now, in the subsequent libel suit, Mrs. Truth sued a newspaper that published an article claiming that she was a black witch who manipulated the people who helped her free her son from bondage. She won that suit too and $120 to boot. Like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth helped recruit free men and newly freed men to the ranks of the United States colored troops during the Civil War. In fact, her grandson and Douglass's sons both served in the 54th Massachusetts. Now, let me stop here again for a moment and clarify something that I come to realize over the years escapes a lot of people when they talk about U.S. colored troops in the Civil War. Most people presume that the 54th Massachusetts was the only company of people of African descent that fought in the Civil War. They were not. There were over just under 200 U.S. colored troops and volunteer infantries that fought to preserve the Union and ensure the freedom of their formerly enslaved brothers and sisters. The 54th gets the lion's share of credit because of their high profile servicemen and of course because of the movie Glory. So you've got Harriet Tubman who's um, promoting for people to join the 54th although she actually didn't serve with them when she went off to to help her do her part in the war effort. You have Sojourner Truth who's drumming up support for the 54th Frederick Douglass. It's basically like having you know Denzel Washington and you know and, 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 and I don't know uh, some Nick, other like yeah. amazing black actor yeah um, uh congressman john yeah idris audra alba and and congressman john angela bassett and angela bassett saying join the war because look at our kids and our our relatives they're all in this this troop so yeah 54th was just one company just one you know um that's one thing to know hmm. how, the, how sad yeah. i mean the recognition is very lacking for the amazing men who lost their lives for this country. I mean, it just makes you think of all of the idiot bigoted people out there who want to go back to this, to the glory days of yeah. the United States. And I'm like, the glory days of what? You are who you are and you're in the country that you're in because of everyone's contribution to the greatness of this country. Yeah. And not just one group of people, every group. Of right. People. And in the case of the 54th, when you think about it, there are, the statistics kind of vary in this, but most people say that there were no less than a hundred thousand black troops that wow. joined during the Civil War. By kind of reducing that to just one company, the 54th Massachusetts, what it says is, you know, these people didn't even fight for the 
themselves or very few of them chose to fight for themselves which is why I went and made the point that yeah there are people out there this was just like the the vanguard mm-hmm. yeah um Miss Truth is credited for writing the Valiant Soldiers battle song for the first Michigan Colored Regiment did she write it or did someone write it for her that's interesting so the story goes that she because she did not write right she presented this at um there was a rally in Detroit to try and drum up recruits for the color troops and she sang this version of a song that supposedly is this a very very similar with the exception of maybe like two or three lines to the first Arkansas color troops Hmm, song so like so she had a reference she had a reference Mm -hmm. but there were several songs now this is an interesting thing and I do have the lyrics of this song posted on our Pinterest feed so that people can read and there's this whole backstory behind that and whether she should get credit for it this song and a lot of other songs that were Civil War battle songs were set to the hymn of what people you know black people called John Brown's body and what in 18 1821 the Atlantic Weekly published as the Battle Hymn of the Republic so the song John Brown's Body was John Brown's Body Lies a Moldering in Its Grave I actually by the time I came along (laughs) my grandfather was born in 1910 when I got sick he used to sing John Brown's Baby Has a Coal on His Chest because you don't sing about a body moldering in its grave oh my but this song has so many different iterations that one is of course older than the, the John Brown's body one is maybe older than the one that was in the Atlantic. Um, but essentially Battle Hymn of the Republic, most people know. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Um, people just, they had several different iterations. Okay. And so you it's can hard hear to... the variants. Okay. Yeah. But they would change the lines. So that, All right. yeah, a little bit of, of music with the music bay. <laughs> <laughs> I am a music bay. I okay. love music bays. So Sojourner Truth is a new music bay. <laughs> right? And we actually um, have a link to the song that is, there's only, I didn't hear any recorded ones. And I was talking to Miki about this. I didn't hear any recorded ones. Sweet Honey in the Rock has actually remade this song. And it's on our Pinterest feed as well. But that is their mix. And um, it is different than the one, and it it definitely has the Sweet Honey in the Rock sound to it. Hmm. Um, But yeah, you guys can check that out on our Pinterest feed. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of links, a lot of interesting info. A lot of info if you just kind of really kind of want to delve into what we haven't covered here because yeah surprisingly most people would drive through Battle Creek and maybe know one or two things about it Mm -hmm. but there's so much history in that one little town yeah in this one episode (laughs) so much history um, but yeah, we still haven't told you about how Sojourner Truth came to Battle Creek. Yes, I was wondering because I'm like, okay, so what does she have in connection with the Battle Creek? Oh yeah, I remember from our first Battle Creek part one um, that she was treated at the sanitarium. Yes, she was. Big time. She was treated at the sanitarium um, by Dr. John Harvey Kellogg for yeah. ulcerations in her leg. And one of his cures was to, they say he took skin grafts from his own skin and put them on her she did not heal from that um she did it did not kill her ultimately but she did not die long after i think it was like one or two months after her treatment at the sand she died okay yeah yeah wow so interesting what brought her to the eugenicist people yeah that, i mean like yeah he was such he is really honestly in many ways quintessential in his dichotomies you know most people <laughs> are a mix of good and bad and people have a hard time like we need to be able to say this person was really rotten or this person was really good and the truth of the matter is the story is way more complex than that and people have their great parts and their bad parts and John Harvey Kellogg really embodies that like we owe him a lot but he also had some very twisted things um there's an article in Jezebel that I'm going to put on the Pinterest feed that is pretty scathing um because quite honestly the man did things like blame sexual abuse and children on the child and on latent sexual urges and he believed that those types of abuses could be quelled by 
sexual mutilation, what we would call sexual mutilation now, you know? So, but this very same guy built a huge playground for his 42 adopted and foster kids and hired nurses to come and attended them on this playground. And brought one of them a pony. And it brought one of them a pony. Into like, the living room. Into the living room just because this is what this kid wanted. So, <sighs> everybody has a little bit of good and bad and some people just have bigger extremes of it of good and bad yes yeah mm-hmm. you know i yeah you guys have to handle it when you're eating your next bowl of cornflakes or special k or you know grape nuts well grape nuts is post so you don't mm-hmm. you don't have to think about that but yeah but next time you, you figure out whether he was good or bad you eat your cornflakes you eat your cornflakes and and remember that that's supposed to keep you from masturbating and <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and you try and figure out whether this guy was okay or not oh boy because <laughs> i can't do it <laughs> you know mm-hmm. um well back to sojourner truth <laughs> yes mm-hmm. yeah kellogg that crazy kellogg back to sojourner truth in um 1856 henry willis a michigan quaker invites sojourner truth to the battle creek to address the friends of human progress convention by september of 1857 miss truth sells her home in southampton new york and all of her possessions and moves to a quaker settlement in harmonia which is approximately where the Oak Hill Cemetery is now. So essentially she begins and ends her journey in Battle Creek in the cemetery. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So at six foot, Sojourner Truth was a woman who stood tall, both figuratively and literally. The bronze statue of Sojourner Truth at the corner of Division and Michigan Avenue is 12 foot tall, double the height of the woman herself. And that monument is dwarfed by the shadow of her influence which spreads far and wide she had so many achievements honors memorials that we could not discuss them all in this podcast I will add one interesting little fact now that I just had to share. So remember how I said earlier that she was first sold by after the the son of her slave owner died and, and lost space. Well, he had to sell off his quote unquote assets. She was sold $100 in the sheet. There is a dorm named after Sojourner Truth at Rutgers University. Why? Because the grandson of the man who first owned her went on to found Rutgers University and when they found that out they decided that they had to pay her homage that's dope it's deep too so they changed it from his name to her name the, the dorm yeah is just it's got her name on it okay and recognition of her but yeah wow. yeah wow, how touching that is deep. that must have been the move of the students of course it was mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no it was <laughs> but yeah so she had so many achievements that we can't put them all in there. Um, in fact, the day of my visit or our visit to Battle Creek, Norwegian Airlines announced that Sojourner Truth would be the first woman honored on their tailfin program. Now, Sojourner Truth bore five children, four of whom lived to adulthood. She now has about 200 descendants and Wandering Blurds had the opportunity to talk to one of her descendants, Shelley McClatchy, about her famous forebearers legacy. So you are a descendant one of the many descendants of sojourner truth how does that feel okay sojourner truth yes uh, I, I read about her in the seventh grade in my, one of my history books and that's how i realized that uh i was a descendant because uh my pr- my principal was talking to me one of my teachers talked to me and they was telling me that it was thomas mcglitchie but uh in the book it wasn't spelled mcglitchie was so leachy and i said well my dad is thomas mcglitchie and i said well i would believe you're a descendant to her a descendant. And I said, oh, so I went home and asked my dad and he told me it was true. That's how I found out. So that's how you found out. Amazing. Wow. So he didn't even mention it to you before that you found out in school. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So you know what what um originally Sojourner Truth was a New Yorker. Do you know what um made her move to Battle Creek? Battle Creek. Uh, to me, I think it was just uh Battle Creek being a uh, quiet town and being a uh, a peaceful town and it's small. I think she just wanted a place where it was more smaller too and more peaceful. Were you born and raised and lived in um Battle Creek your whole life? Yep. So what if you had to you know recommend places to go in Battle Creek where where would you recommend people visit? Well, I rec- place I would recommend uh, the uh, the McCanley Plaza is a good place, and uh, Claire's on the River. 
her because you can see the statues of Jenna Truth as you walk up through or sitting back and enjoying your breakfast or your coffee. And the first location, what kind of location is that? It's a, it's like a small cafe, oh. like a little restaurant. Okay, that sounds and it's, nice. Yeah, it's got a lot of um, like trees and statues. And one of the Sedona Q statues are there also. That's nice. When I went to Battle Creek back at the end of July, it happened to be the day that Norwegian Airlines released... Um, they announced that they were releasing a plane with Sojourner Truth on the tail fin. And when I called and talked to the director of media relations, um, he informed me that she was going to be the first American featured on their tail fin program. Um, yeah, and I, I seen uh, the plane and I seen a uh, picture on the plane, on the tail end of the plane. Where did you see that picture? How, how did you uh, first hear about this? <laughs> It was on Facebook. Well, um, I happened to see the picture on, on Facebook. And then uh, I called my dad and I said, well, do you know they got a picture of Sojourner Truth on a plane? He said, oh, yeah, you just not seeing the picture. And I was like, yes. I had asked them when I called, you know, did you reach out to the family and, you know, did you have a lunch? They said that, you know, they don't normally do that. And that's why they, they didn't reach out, but that she was going to be the first person um, American to be featured in their tail fan prog- uh, program. And I was yeah, just, I just wondered, like, when you look at her legacy, what do you feel like her legacy is for people today? Like for American women today, because, you know, she was such for, a huge figure. For, for American women today, I think that it, she's a, a great role model because she struggled through a lot of journeys. She's accomplished a lot of things. She made women's rights and women's health more positive and gave more positive, positive role model for women to be able to come through and get over everything. Any obstacle that they can face in life, they can overcome it. Okay. Do you see any any similarities um, in in your life? Yes. Any of those traits? Yes. Hmm. Okay. So you're a strong woman as well. <laughs> I have seven kids. I'm strong. Ooh, seven kids. That's beautiful. And you're sixth generation. So the kids, your children would be seventh generation descendants. So the legacy goes on. Yes. Have you yeah. have you shared this uh, information with your children? Oh yes, they are. No, they. they they're excited because um, uh, two of my children, they said, well, we, we got descendants on both sides because uh, they're also um, a pile of wild means there uh, where the casino is built. So they own part of the casino because they're Indian tribes. So they said, well, we're, we're descendants on both sides. Not only Indian, Indian descendants, but we have Sojourner Truth descendants. So they're a lot excited about that one. Amazing. Wow. I spoke to your father briefly this weekend, and he he mentioned that you all have a family reunion uh, of all the descendants out in, um, I think he said it was Los Angeles in California. And he mentioned, oh, yeah. have you ever been? Yeah, I've been to uh, several. I haven't even been to the ones that we had in Grand Rapids. Oh, you all have one in Grand Rapids. Yeah, because see, we, each year we sort of switch. You know, some, one year we'll have it in Battle Creek, and the next year when we have a family reunion, we'll have it in Grand Rapids. So the people that are in Grand Rapids, and they can be closer than coming all the way down to Battle Creek, California. And yeah, I actually place. stayed in Grand Rapids when I came to Battle Creek. Yeah. Uh, so it's not that far. What um What is one thing that you enjoy a lot about uh living in Battle Creek? In Battle Creek, I love to enjoy about it because it's a, a small town, and basically everybody knows everybody and you ain't got to worry about too bad it just neighborhoods that are sort of bad but uh there's mm-hmm. a lot of families that are on the beach you said like you can't go nowhere to a store without running into one of your family members mm-hmm. which is a great thing and my children that's great well do you have any questions for us before we uh take off this evening no but i appreciate y'all giving me a call and letting me have a chance to talk to you oh of course thank you so much yeah. uh, we we are really lucky to to speak with you as as a woman as as a strong woman Right. And as a descendant of Sojourner, Sojourner Truth, Truth. Yeah. I, I, I have one more question, actually, because so we're a traveling podcast. We love to travel. We love to meet people and make friends everywhere. And obviously, Sojourner Truth, she's also a traveler. She was a traveler herself. Are, are you a traveler? Uh, no, my health is not that good to be a traveler. Okay. Well, I mean, you don't have to go across the world to be a traveler. You know, it's pretty much um, going from one place I, to another. <laughs> yeah. I'll That's travel to Kansas with uh, Jackson or Lampton. I'll travel there. That sounds great. <laughs> Very cool, very cool. Yeah, well, like like my like my partner Mickey here, I also want to um 
to thank you again <laughs> for your time. Um, is is there any great uh, activities you'd like for all of us to know or any projects that you're working on or you're just you're living life with your amazing children? Well, basically, uh, I, I like working with my dad when he's doing his painting and when he gets uh, the family union together, he makes a lot of t-shirts and hats. I got some Turner Truth on him. He, get, he makes pins. Oh, he makes a lot of good Keep us, get a memory alive, which is awesome. That's right. So I'm going to reach out to him, and we're going to reach out to him a little bit later, but we wanted to talk to you first and hear what you had to say, and uh, we thank you for your time. And we will definitely let you know. I understand your, your father told me that Sojourner Truth Day in Battle Creek is on October the 8th. Yeah. Yeah. So what we'll do is we're hoping to release the show sometime around there, um, either the week before or the week after. So we will let you know before the show comes out. Oh, that'd be great. All right. Right. Wonderful. And I look forward to making it there for Sojourner Truth Day one day. And we thank you for your time. And thank you for calling. Oh, Have definitely. a great day. Yeah. Have a great day. It's the same thing. All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Wow. Amazing stuff that was. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. What a legacy to hold. Mm-hmm. Less than a mile, we're going to go to the last stop in Battle Creek, which is the Underground Railroad. Less than a mile away from the Sojourner Truth Monument off of North Division Street behind the Kellogg House stands the largest underground railroad monument in the United States. Commissioned by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and designed by Denver artist Ed Dwight, the 14-foot high, 28-foot long monument is a testament to the intrepid freedom seekers and brave conductors and station agents who put their lives on the line to usher their brothers and sisters out of bondage. So Harriet Tubman, Erastus, and Sarah Hussey feature prominently in the statue's tableau, which features the Husseys ushering runaways through a door in their home and dry goods store. While there's no record of Harriet Tubman ever visiting Battle Creek, the Husseys were local Quakers who, like Sojourner Truth, relocated from New York to Battle Creek. Erastus Hussey wore many hats during his lifetime, including shopkeeper, county clerk, school director, mayor, and legislator. The Underground Railroad Monument speaks volumes of his most important role, station master. Sarah and Rastus Hussey sheltered over a thousand souls on their way to freedom in Canada. A Michigan State historic marker now sits on East Michigan Avenue at Linear Park, and that marks the spot where the Hussey's home once stood. Now, Battle Creek was a major stop on the Central Michigan route of the Underground Railroad, which began in Cass County and traveled through Climax, Battle Creek, Albion, Grass Lake, Ann Arbor, Plymouth, and Detroit. Okay. It's really interesting. I'm finding, um, so we've got some cities coming up for you all. And I noticed that in most of the cities, there are Underground Railroad routes. Mm -hmm. And we'll take you to some more of those if you guys stay tuned and keep listening. Wow. Okay. So uh, upcoming episodes we have and and we thank you guys for being patient with us because we know that you know we haven't produced every month but we're hoping to get things out to you sooner um so we really do thank you all for being patient and listening with us but we've got lots of good things planned for you lots um so stay tuned for more history more blurred life um and this brings us to an end of another episode of wandering blurs now we hope you know where to go in battle creek michigan a very special thanks goes to my Michael Mac McCullough at the Willard Library. Additional thanks goes to Thomas McClatchy and Shelley McClatchy. And this brings us to the end of this episode of Wandering Blurds. I'm Mickey B. And I'm Mickey T. Thank you for wandering with us, Blurds. <laughs> if you have any questions, comments, or recommendations, uh, get in touch with us via Instagram or Facebook or just search for Wandering Blurds and go to the Gifted Sounds Network. We'll be there. Happy wandering, guys. Happy wandering. Ah, last but not least, before we finally sign off, if there's somewhere that you want us wandering blurs to go, please let us know. And we should let you know that we have three de- destinations that you guys can vote by crowdfunding. So we're going to put up a GoFundMe page um, where you all can vote by crowdfunding us. We are a new network and a new show. And um, it would help us raise funds to pick our destinations to wander to. So for the donations that are made, if you make a donation and you have some place that you want us to stop in a city, we will actually give you a shout out when we go to that location and answer any questions that you may have about it. So be on the lookout for that. We'll even
even visit visit special spots that you've been thinking about going to. We'll check it out for you. We'll take some video. And um, if we have the opportunity to, we'll chat with you on Periscope. So you can hit us up there live. Live Periscope. So those pages will be up soon. Get your dollars out. (laughs) Vote on. Vote with your dollars. And uh, we appreciate your support. (laughs) Olvídalo.